KYW Original Podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. Data about the coronavirus epidemic is coming in from China. So what can we learn from it? And why does the virus look like it's behaving differently depending on which country you're in? Dr. Chris Johnson is an assistant professor in Temple's Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, and she was an emerging infectious disease fellow at Florida's Department of Health during the Zika outbreak. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So what are the key things you're looking for when you're trying to figure out a new infectious disease and how it spreads? So the big thing is figuring out if the way it's transmitted is the way that other diseases like it have been transmitted. So with Zika, in that case, we were kind of looking at yellow fever and other mosquito-borne illnesses to see if it was transmitted in similar ways. And we actually found out that it wasn't. Remember, Zika became sexually transmitted, so that was new information. So we're doing kind of the same thing with this coronavirus. Um, The common cold is actually a coronavirus, and we know of other coronaviruses. But this one seems to be airborne more so than other coronaviruses have been. So that's what's contributing to how infectious it is and how quickly it's spreading. And is it spreading? You know, people aren't believing, I guess. A lot of people, there's still a segment of people who, who say it's really not that bad. It's really not spreading any faster than, than like, let's say the flu. And that could be true. We've seen um, in epidemiology, we have something that's called the R0, and that's just the number of people that can get infected by an infected person. And if we look at the numbers for that, it is about the same for the flu. The problem with that is that in our population, we have a flu vaccine, and all of us have had the flu at some point. So there's immunity in our our population. That's not the case with the coronavirus. So everyone who comes into contact with this virus is actually going to develop some sort of symptoms with it. Some people have very mild symptoms, but all of us are going to have some sort of reaction because our bodies have no immunity to it whatsoever. So the data is starting to come in from China where it appears the epidemic has leveled off. Cases have certainly slowed dramatically And the numbers show uh, that most people who got it, 80 percent, only suffered minor symptoms. Does this mean it's not as bad as we thought? That probably does mean it's not as bad as we thought. Um, But that can also mean that we have a lot of cases that are going undetected here in the U.S. because our testing took so long to ramp up that right now we're only testing people who are symptomatic. So then if 80% of people are not symptomatic enough to even need medical intervention or need testing, they're probably still walking around acting like they're fine. And the problem is then unknowingly they can spread it to people who might get very sick with it. Right. So they might still be running errands or going to see their grandma and grandpa or volunteering, and they could be infecting people without realizing that they are infectious. When you're seeing the data now coming out of China, now that they're further along than we are, even though their population is quite different from ours, are you learning from that? Or is there anything you're pulling out of that that's giving you any aha moments? Um, So learning um, about the children having a very low level of interaction with the virus is really good and very heartening for us because that means that our children are largely going to be safe. 
children who don't have a chronic disease are, are probably going to be fine. And so it really helps us decide who our high-risk populations are and who needs to be tested if we have any limitations on the number of tests that we have. So then we would want to make sure that we know if older people or people with chronic conditions or people who are immunocompromised um, are positive for coronavirus, so we can go ahead and get them on supportive therapies like fever reducers, making sure that they're hydrated so their body has the best possible chance of fighting it off. Okay. So there are also numbers out of Italy, and I thought this was interesting, and I don't know if you, if you pulled this out too, but they broke it down by gender, and they said that women only make up 30% of fatalities and that the women who died also tended to be older than the men who died. Um, what does that tell you, if anything? So we know just looking at populations that women live longer anyway. And so it looks like the women who died were about three years older. Well, women live about three years longer in developed countries than men do. So that's not all that um, unusual for us to see. And if we, um, and I'm not sure if this is true for the Italian culture, but if we think about um, who is more likely to go to a doctor's office when they're sick, typically women are more likely to seek care earlier than men. Uh, I did some focus groups in South Florida, and the men's group actually said, I have to be about halfway dead before I go to the doctor. And if that's when these men are actually seeking medical intervention, it could be a little bit too late for them to be able to recover. That's interesting. So you you look at the numbers, but then you really have to kind of dive deep into the why and what the possible answers might be that could explain that could explain that. Right. So th- those are called social determinants of health. So um, our culture can be its own social determinant of health. So men typically are meant to be the stronger segment of the population. So they don't kind of run to the doctor, but that can really have negative complications negative complications for this virus and really any disease or injury that we see. So then there, were, there was this out of France. Um, half of all coronavirus patients currently in intensive care were under the age of 60. And Public Health France said that was a new dynamic. How do you, is it a new dynamic? And how do you, how do you kind of explain that with the other numbers that are coming in from other countries? So I'm kind of interested in why they decided to say people under the age of 60, because the way China has been breaking it down has been um, children and then those 20 to 29. And those are the two groups that are least likely to have really bad interactions and have to get medical intervention. So I'm not sure if it's this 30 to 60 or 30 to 59 range that's really pushing it. Um, I could definitely see, though, that in some um some of our Western countries, how it could differ, because we do have different levels of chronic disease in the U.S., France, and Italy than China does. So it could be a manifestation of the number of chronic conditions and the prevalence of chronic conditions in our countries, or it could truly be that the coronavirus is just affecting um, people who are a little bit younger more harshly in France. It seems like, I mean, you know, for those of us who aren't experts in this, it seems like the, the numbers and the information keeps changing. And in some instances, it even seems contradictory. So it's so hard to make sense of this. And and then I start wondering and other people wonder, like, is the virus changing? Is it is it changing? Is that 
Does it change with geography or just with populations, or is it changing itself? Um, so I'm going to address what you said in two different parts. Um, because we have, this is a novel coronavirus. It's one that we haven't seen before, and it, that's why we don't have immunity to it. We are going to learn different things weekly, daily. And so some guidance is going to change on a daily basis. And that was the same with Zika virus. I taught a room or a county full of clinicians from Monday through Thursday. And then Friday, I had to contact all of them and tell them something completely different because new CDC guidance had come out. We've learned more things about it. So we are doing well like that. Every time you see a contradiction, that means we've learned something else about it. And that kind of empowers us more as a society. It's like you're trying to put a puzzle together and the pieces just keep moving. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Um, especially considering the groundbreaking information that this can be airborne for a couple of hours. That changes things in that way. Um, But to your point, again, they did find that there looked to be about two strains of this. One is more aggressive and one is less aggressive. Um, So it could also be that France is seeing more of the aggressive strain compared with China. I also even read a blurb uh, earlier today that said people with blood type A might be more susceptible to this. I read that. So people with type O are less susceptible than people with type B and people with type A are more susceptible than people with type B. Um, So that's something that is kind of unprecedented. Um, More data really needs to come out about that, but it could be something that has to do with the structure of our blood types um, that could be affecting that. And that just remains to be seen. So there's a lot of anxiety about there, which means, you know, people want answers now just to ease their anxiety. But really, I mean, we've just talked about all the kind of variables that you're looking at. So what is reasonable when you're studying a novel disease like that? Like, honestly, how long will it take you to figure this out? Um, So... We're finally getting like resolved case numbers from China and we'll get those from South Korea because they both have managed to get this virus under control. And as Italy eventually gets to that point in France and then once the U.S. gets there, we can take the information and kind of cross reference them across country. Um, And that way we're making sure that we're seeing consistent results. So I would say um, we can probably look to get more solid information that isn't changing from a day-to-day basis in the next six months. And probably a year out, we'll have some really good, solid information. You'll see peer-reviewed articles, and you won't hear that much new information coming out about it at all. Which just sounds like such a long time away when everybody is holed up at home and not able to go out. I know, but just keep in mind that you can still, like, go out and go walk in your neighborhood. Just make sure that you're keeping that social distance from each other. Um, As kind of creepy as it might sound, um, my fiance and I actually walk to um, a historic cemetery, which is relatively unpopulated. And it's kind of interesting to see the structures that people have there. And that way we're not around people, but we're still getting our physical activity and not feeling cooped up in an apartment all day. So what, how long do you think we are going to have to social distance? What have we learned from China and South Korea about this? I think what we've learned is if we do this well, then within a month, we could start getting back to our normal lives, start getting our economy back on track and all of that. 
But that requires that everyone follow these recommendations. Only go out to get groceries or the pharmacy or anything whenever you absolutely have to, because we know that people who are asymptomatic can still be infectious. So going to get a carton of eggs could actually be pretty costly for you. Um, So just kind of think about whether you really need to go out and make sure that you are keeping, I would say, 10 feet distance away from people that you're not uh, living with just to be sure that you're not going to get infected by them. And if we do that in the next two weeks to a month, we could definitely start seeing our cases go very low and our usual standard of living and uh, what our lives previously looked like, um, we can start getting back to that. So you just said 10 feet, right? I did. Instead of six feet. I did. Um, And the reason I say 10 feet is because, um, especially if you're outside, there are variables like wind. So consider if somebody was sneezed and you're somebody sneezed and you were downwind from them, that could be a little um, more hairy, but 10 feet actually, especially indoors will allow respiratory droplets or viral particles from a sneeze or cough to settle before they get to you. So if you want to make absolutely sure that you're not going to get contaminated, 10 feet is the way to go. If you're not seeing someone with outward symptoms, then probably six feet is fine. And is it fine being outside in the fresh air? Because they they were saying, you know, you really, like you just said, you don't want to be in a closed space, but can you get outside and walk with friends? Um, so you can walk as long as you give each other space between (laughs) each other. So I wouldn't say walk, you know, hand in hand or anything like that with friends. But, um, yeah, you can still definitely, like I said, go get out on a walking trail that's relatively wide. Um, or, um, you can ride bikes that again, relatively wide. You usually give each other a little bit more space whenever you're on bicycles too. So that's good. So you can still get out, be active, and have some social interaction. Uh, There was a meme that I saw where there was a group of neighborhood dads that were all um, chatting with each other but standing six feet apart in a circle in a cul-de-sac. So that's something that can be done as well. Yeah, I see. I walk around my neighborhood, and I I see a lot of that. And I do walk with friends, and then we see neighbors out kind of having these large circles. Um, Mm -hmm. There's been some criticism of Governor Wolf's decision to close all non-essential businesses. You know, some are labeling this, you know, way too aggressive. Is it? No. Um, If anything, it's something that could have come a week or two weeks ago. And so for people to say that it's not, it's too aggressive, I disagree. Because in public health, if we don't do things that appear too aggressive, then we're going to get left behind very quickly, and this would take a lot longer to resolve. So I think he made a smart decision by going ahead and closing down all non-essential entities. And I like the fact that pharmacies are even getting more on board with this and offering free delivery. I know um, CVS is giving free delivery for people to minimize contact as well. Okay. And uh, finally, do we know anything now about seasonality? There was some hope that this might die off in warmer weather. Well, um, coming from the scientific perspective, we don't have any evidence of that. Uh, Influenza still comes out in the summer. It's just influenza A usually instead of influenza B. So we can hope that that would happen, but we should, as a society, prepare 
for coronavirus not being affected at all by seasonality. And if it is, just have that be a happy coincidence. So you think this is going to stick with us, this coronavirus, COVID-19? So I think I compare COVID-19 to swine flu, even though swine flu didn't really, it didn't have the same level of mortality associated with it. Um, Not as many people died with it, but it did become endemic. And so now H1N1 is part of the flu vaccine that we get every year. So I kind of anticipate this becoming endemic. We'll still see outbreaks of it every now and then. But once we have the vaccine, we'll see a lot less of it and we'll be more prepared to manage it because people in our population will have had it and then have immunity to it. So it won't be nearly on the scale that it is now again. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us here on In-Depth. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Carol McKenzie. That's it for KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. We'll be back with another one soon.